Hey, what's up, everybody? Episode 52 of the Grayscale Gorilla Podcast is starting now. Say hello, Chris. Hi there, everybody. How you doing, Nick? Hey, feeling good, man. Where are you at? You're in a very strange location. We've never seen you before. <laughs> I'm, tra- I'm still in the, I'm about halfway through my road trip here, and uh, I'm in Salt Lake City now at uh, my good friend Pete and Amanda's house. And uh, so they graciously let me record this podcast and uh, in, in their beautiful home here. So um, we got some snow going on out the window there. It's, it's, it's gorgeous here um, and uh, taking some time to talk, talk some 3D. What's been going on? Great. Awesome. Well, we don't have any snow here. In fact, we haven't had snow here in the Chicagoland area in a long time. I feel like the end of December. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's been a really weird window or really weird winter. If I look out my window, which you can't see because it won't expose for it, but um, it's been like 50s, 40s, even hit 60 at one point, which is pretty amazing because I don't really like snow. But yeah. um, So what's going on guys what's new uh what's new in your lives oh my gosh uh let's see i've been kind of in between work and skiing and and brainstorming some big projects we got going on that's been kind of my week um i know we're working on a little fun stuff behind the scenes with with signal i know we teased it a little bit was it last week or two weeks ago but i was finally able to uh to play around a little bit more with it too and um i'm really excited for that update um, and then, uh, yeah, Lutz as well. I've been playing more with Lutz and excited to get that out to you guys. Um, so stay tuned for some of that. What have you guys been up to? Lutz. Lutz. <laughs> Chad, you, what happened with that render? You had, uh, you were, so Chad showed me some ideas for, um, the Lutz, uh, package that's coming out soon. And you had a great idea for like a 3D rendered, uh, promotional video, basically, like a way to show the LUTs in 3D. But what happened? There was some rendering thing you were telling me about. Yeah, so I started off like um, I'll get more into into the whys later. But uh, you know, we we try to trying to make promos for our tools and just kind of fun ways to to uh, get people excited about stuff that we're doing. We did it with uh, Link. Um, and we've done before too, even before I was here. So it's, it's, it was one of those things I started building it. I did one that was live action and then we decided to do one that was more 3d centric. And I went down a path in, and I'll, I want, I want to hear what's going on with Chris before I, you know, take up a bunch of time. Oh, yeah, you're going on to the real topic. I don't know. I'm not doing anything. I've just been working on signal. So yeah, you had a lazy week that weekend though, right? Did oh, you watch any weekend. movies? Busy week, lazy weekend. No, I started, oh, yeah, my brother convinced me to jump back in and play heroes of the storm with again heroes of the storm so i did way too much of that this weekend is that a, what kind of video game is that, is that? I don't game know. Video game? Uh, it's a blizzard it's a blizzard video game so my favorite video game company and as i used to play it a ton like two years ago and then i fell out of it and so playing it again nice so, that's my weekend well i w- i spent my weekend kind of rendering and um you know again for the promo thing and it was it was an interesting I learned a little. I had a little self-discovery moment. I started off, as all of you probably know, I've been playing around with Redshift a lot, and I think it's a fantastic renderer that's kind of up and coming. It's in alpha right now, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to do the promo in Redshift? I might be able to find some bugs and really kind of help the the beta move that along. And I ended up um, finding out that it can't do uh, multiple UVs in one shader. And a lot of people, and I think this is a bit of a, for some people in cinema, this is a bit of a foreign concept, but for me, it's a very natural thing. Uh, in fact, I, I kind of hit up a few artists about it and they were, didn't understand what I meant. Yeah, when you were talking about it, I knew what you meant, but I didn't know why you needed it. Okay, so typically, when I say multiple UVs in one material, the reason that I would want to do that is like, let's say you've, uh, I'm going to use one of my skateboards in my background. For those of you listening at home, I have some skateboards on my wall, some old classic decks. So if I let's say that we had a skateboard in 3D. Let's just say it's this middle one, this Fred Smith deck that I love that was created by Tim Chiapetta. A little shout out to Tim. He also made this one for half res. Um, anyway, so let's say we're making that in 3D. And we UV the skateboard in cinema like you would. And... Um, you know, you got the design. Maybe you did like a you did a quick you know top top section of the board UV, flattened it out, 
bottom section done and done. Okay, so now let's say for whatever reason you wanted to um, add maybe, I don't know, some dirt or some scratches on the deck that maybe go over the corners, like where you can see the wood grain on the edges of the deck. And let's say for whatever reason you didn't UV that out because that wasn't really something you planned on doing or it's just you know too much of a pain in the ass when you could just use a cubic map or something like that. So generally when you have an object that has a very kind of already pre-laid out UV system and you just want to be able to add grunge or something on top of it, uh, but not have to adhere to the old UVs because you want to be able to scale them, you want to be able to change them. So it's very typical to have like several different UV sets for me on one material. Um, and it apparently is not <laughs> as widely a used concept in cinema for some reason, but um, Arnold can do it. Um, I don't know if Octane can do it. I haven't. Yeah, I think Octane can do it because Octane has it basically in the actual texture node. You can actually change, make it box, cubic, cylindrical, whatever in the actual. I was going to say, for, yeah, for the sake of clarification, are you. You say different UVs, but I mean, in cinema, we have UV maps specifically, and then we have a whole bunch of different projection types. Okay, you... so let me clarify. Um, I'm talking about multiple UV tags that are named, okay? Like maybe one of them is, is a cubic. Let's just use um, a cube as a, as a thing, you know? Like maybe you unwrapped a cube so it looks like a cross, okay? And you saved that UV tag and you named it cube cross. And then you UV it again, and this time you do it all flat projected and you name that UV tag flat projected. So in um, Arnold and in Redshift, not it doesn't really work right in Redshift, which is kind of the point I was getting at, you can actually drag those UV tags onto the texture and it'll just say, okay, I'm gonna use this UV tag to map whatever texture this is. And it is a really robust and powerful way to kind of run your materials because now you can, all of a sudden, you can have a million UV tags on an object and have different mappings for different textures and your grunge can be a cube map and it's just repeating everywhere and it looks great. And then you might have like a decal that's like a flat projection map. Um, for clarification again, uh, in, in Redshift and, and all these other ones, what would happen if, okay, you have your default layer and that's your normal UVs and that should work. But then let's say you apply a second material. Can you just apply it like cubically and not like bake it down or do they so have a in, different in map? In Octane, yes. To answer your question, in Octane, you can do that. In Octane, actually, this is a cool feature of Octane where you had, let's say, an image you bring in. You can hit UV. It's called, I think, the it's a little button that says projection. So each map, you can behind the scenes apply a secondary type of projection, mm -hmm. whether it's cubic or cylindrical or whatnot. It doesn't create a tag. In fact, you don't even, um, it doesn't create like any sort of gizmo. It's just kind of does it, which is kind of a cool feature actually for adding grunge. You can just hit cubic or whatever and, and it just works. I, I guess the, apparently the spot I was lost at is I thought Cinema 4D's engine was dealing with all the UVs, but apparently it's per render engine? No, not necessarily. I don't know how Octane is doing it with their texture node. Maybe somebody that does know can hit us in the comments. I would love to know. Um, but no, that's it, it. They are using the UV coordinates of of Cinema. Um, but I'm not sure if I'm going to answer this right or not. But the way that Arnold actually used multiple UV tags from Cinema does that make sense? Yeah. So you can have multiple UV tags on one object mm -hmm. and you can name them, you know, flat, cubic. Sure. I've done that like whatever, once. whatever yeah. you want. And then you can drag those in Arnold and in Redshift onto specific materials. The idea is that I was creating a Nikon camera of, of a model of a 3D model of a Nikon camera. And it was pre-UV'd because it was a, it was a model that we purchased uh, from TurboSquid. Shout out to Sherpa Squid. And um, it was pre-UV'd with, uh, you know, all the decals and everything laid out perfectly. But whoever laid it out, the lens part of the camera, didn't lay out the lens the way that you would want to create any sort of smudges or grime on the lens. It was laid out just specifically for the little numbers on the side of the lens, the f-stop and whatnot. So um, I had a choice. I could either re-UV map the entire thing, um, or I'd like what I would normally do is just add another UV, make it cubic, and that will be where my grunge lives. My grunge will live in the cubic, and my uh, the numbers of my f-stop will live in, in the normal UV tag.
Does that make sense so far? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Like this is not, and right now I'm learning that this is not a typical workflow for Cinema 4D, yet it is a very typical workflow in every other 3D program, um, which is, you know, maybe why Cinema needs to completely redo their UV system uh, or at least update it. Um, anyway, uh, the bottom line was it Redshift had the ability to, the ability to do it, but it So I ended up saying, okay, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to do it in Octane, and I'll just rebuild it, do it in Octane, no big deal. So I started redoing in Octane, rebuilt all the materials, rebuilt all of the um, the lighting and whatnot. And I started to render, and I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm getting like three minutes of frame, which is really, really good. Even, you know, like, that's really good. But we're talking about a 45-second spot that I'm making and each shot, you know, I'm giving myself lots of heads and tails because I want to mess with it in the edit. Maybe I'll change my mind about something. So you're talking about like, um, I don't know, uh, over 2000 frames that needed to be rendered. <laughs> and so when you think about three minutes of frame, you're like, yeah, this is no problem. This is a, this is not a big deal until then you start multiplying it by that many frames and realizing that that's your only computer and realizing that it's on GPU and it's going to be running at 85 degrees for the next three days. And I started thinking like, oh my God, like this is not very sustainable for me on this job. Like I don't, I don't want, number one, I don't want to tie up my machine for three days uh, rendering um, because I've obviously have other, you know, we other GSG work to do. But then also on top of that, like I felt kind of scared to have my GPUs running at max capacity for four days straight, heating up this room to God knows how hot. I don't know, it just kind of freaked me out. And and then I started thinking like, oh my God, you know, I haven't, I haven't cleaned my computer in a while. What if there's dust in there? And like, what if I burn something out? I started getting a little paranoid and stuff. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm not gonna do this. I'm not going, because basically I started rendering with the first shot and I'm like, I literally have to like not be on my machine and just sit here and like wait for it to render. And that's when I realized, I'm like, you know what, forget this. I'm gonna do it in Arnold and I'm gonna send it to Pixel Plow to render, which is, if you haven't heard of Pixel Plow, they're an amazing cloud rendering service that we recommend. Uh, and they can render Arnold jobs in Cinema 4D and all of our plugins and whatnot. So I decided, all right, that's how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna. I'm going to just work on a shot, get it to how I like it, send it off to the farm, start working on my next shot, send it off to the farm. Just kind of like, you know, work and send and work and send. And by the time, um, you know, after like a half an hour, I'm getting frames back from my first submission. And I'm like, okay, this makes more sense for me. And um, it didn't end up costing that much at all. And it saved me um, a ton of time. It would still be rendering right now. I probably would have had to pause it if it was rendering on Octane right now. Um, so yeah, it was just one of those things where like I ended up going full circle. I thought to myself, okay, I'm, I'm gonna do a GPU thing and uh, it, it's, gonna, it's gonna be great, it's gonna be awesome, it's gonna be fast. And then I realized that like, okay, yeah, the GPU thing makes a lot of sense until you have like a lot of frames and if that's your only workstation, you don't have another one you can send it to, then you're is kind of... Not, is there not a farm solution for GPU right now? Like Octane, <clears throat> I feel like I've heard this story before too with Octane people where they're all like hit with a big job and they have maybe even four to eight cards at their disposal, but then they really just need to farm it. And is there just no way to do that right now? There, there... I've heard there is a couple places claiming that they can do GPU rendering. I'm not going to name them because I, I just don't want to miss... I don't want to say the wrong one, basically. Uh, and then a toy was supposed to launch their own, and as far as I know, it's not live yet. Um, but no, they're to from the people that I know, and I'm sure there'll be people on here that, that'll say, oh, I've done it and it's great, but I don't know personally anybody that's found one that worked. I, I knew someone that found one and it didn't work and it ended up being a disaster and they got a refund and all this stuff. So I think it's really hard to build <laughs> you know, a, a, a render farm refund is small consolation 
Yeah, I know. Because right? by the time you're going to a render farm, you're already like deadline. You're like, okay, I have to pay extra money for this. I need it now. Right. It, it just falls through, and they're like, here's your money back. You're like, no, 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 no. That is not what this is about. Yeah, I mean that 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 is kind of just like in adding insult to injury at that point. You're like, great, I get my money back, and I just lost this job because my clients all mad at me. But the what we called, and I think we talked about it maybe on an earlier podcast, was what 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 I kind of call the octane effect, um, which um, uh, trademark by the way. Um, T-shirts coming soon. Yeah, T-shirts. So the octane effect is is that you think that you're set because you're look deving in octane um, and it's super fast and you're just like blowing through these shots. Things start to get more complicated. Client starts to add more complexity, changes, whatnot. All of a sudden, your your two your render that was resolving in uh, let's say thirty or less seconds on your IPR window. When you now need to render in HD and with all all the settings turned up, you're now looking at a render that is not as fast as you thought, and you can't you don't have anywhere to turn. That's the octane effect because you realize, oh my God, I went down this path and I have no I have no escape plan. And I've had a couple artists come to me about that, and I've had I've heard from artists that literally are trying to buy a computer over the weekend that has a decent GPU in it because they have nowhere else to turn. Like their only solution is to go buy more hardware somewhere. Like I'll go to micro center and just buy all the GPUs they've got. I just need to get this job done. And like that, that's scary as hell. But I getting back to the original question. No, there aren't any that I know of. I'm sure somebody's going to hit me up in the comments that there are, I would love to know them and I'd love to have my friends battle test them and see how valuable or how good they are. I know pixel plow, um, is looking at it. Um, so hopefully that'll happen someday soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, so anyway, getting back, I mean, that was kind of when it's all on your machine, you kind of like have to come to this realization, like, am I really willing to sit here and wait for it to finish for 17 hours for one shot and then hope it's right. And then if it's not wait again, 17 hours and not being able to work. So I kind of came to this realization that like Arnold, and you all know that I love Arnold, and it's one of my favorites. And um, it, it really it it may seem slow compared to a GPU renderer, which makes total sense because it's a CPU renderer, and it's you know if you don't have a powerful CPU, then it's as powerful as what you have. But where where you can where where it wins is that you have an escape plan. So if you get into a situation where you're like like me, where I wanted to get this promo out and get it done. Um, I could just, okay, cool. I'm just going to throw it up to pixel plow. I know it'll be done in an hour, two hours and there it is. And, and, and now I don't have to worry about my machine being tied up. So it was interesting. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I guess it, it, it opens up a bigger, more kind of, uh, philosophical question about GP rendering then, um, if GP rendering is not as powerful as as people might think in a in a production environment. Uh, obviously, it makes a lot of sense in different environments, but a shot base where you have to deliver really you know hefty shots and a lot of them. Is it a viable? Is it something that's a good idea if you have no exit plan? If so you don't you have the farms will catch up soon. Like if this is the way that everything's going, I mean. Is there a technical reason that this isn't a thing, or is it just that the forms haven't caught up to what what the users are experimenting with? Is there a technical reason why these farms can't have uh, a giant <laughs> air-conditioned room full of GPUs? I don't, you know, I don't know. I would think that, for one, it's probably not how they envisioned it when they built their, you know, a lot of them had already, had already gone full CPU, so... They they built their whole infrastructure around it, but now you introduce GPUs, which consume more power. They kick off more heat. Um, they're uh, they take up more space. Um, so it, it's probably a lot of different things I'm imagining. Uh, and, and they're not exactly good at distribution, you know. Like that's why. Um, well, you know, I take that back. I think they probably are, um, but. Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'll ask um, 
Ty over at Pixel Plow, and he can tell me what the you know problems that he's run into and what he thinks um, the drawbacks are and whatnot. But mm. I mean, then you got to ask yourself, okay, well, um, if you still need to go to a farm to get your your job done, whether it's a local farm that you've built out of a bunch of GPUs or one that will someday exist on in the cloud. If that's the case, then um, what what's the uh, and on top of this, this has all kind of got me thinking lately. I don't know if you guys follow the AMD announcements that came out. We're getting real nerdy here, so just cut me off at any time. No, this but, is good. We we had like four weeks of you know all the all the like <laughs> mindset <laughs> stuff, and now now we get into the details. So we had all the people that were like really into like the the philosophical stuff, and then all, <laughs> and they were like getting all. You know, I, I want to nerd out, and then so this one's, I guess, for the nerd. It's a, it's a good balance here. Like, All right, like Grace so, Gorilla podcast. Well, a disruptive announcement came, I think, about it was about a week ago, I believe, um, where AMD, who has been largely off the radar for me at least for a long time, I uh, don't think about them at all really. Um, they announced these new chips, these new Ryzen chips, to compete with Intel. And um, I gotta say, they look pretty impressive. They, they. I'm not gonna get into the details. I'm, I'm definitely not that much of a hardware geek, but like, it was basically saying that you could get these eight, these pretty fast eight core chips, you know, hyperthreaded to sixteen uh, threads, um, for half the price of an Intel chip. Mm. So that's huge, right? Because now, I mean, that was that that that's the. The the Intel chips got to be so expensive, and I know because I put I put a couple of the Xeon eight cores in my workstation, and it was the most expensive component in my machine. Um, and it's really kind of gotten out of control, I think. And I think AMD is kind of like we're going to disrupt this whole this whole thing, and we're gonna we're gonna sell our eight core sixteen you know thread chips at like four point I forget what it was like four point five gigahertz overclocked maybe to five I don't know for for 500 bucks which is crazy cheap compared to the 1200 or whatever it cost uh, an Intel chip so why is that why am I even talking about that well because now all of a sudden in my opinion it sort of it kind of makes CPU rendering like not dead <laughs> you know like all of a sudden like half you can you get double speed now like yeah like for the same it, price it's interesting because you know, like everybody and myself, like I think that C GPU rendering is definitely the future. But then AMD comes along and they're like, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, like we can do these chips for so much cheaper." And now all of a sudden, you can get a, um, you know, possibly get two of those. So then you'll have, you know, uh, thirty-two buckets going for a lot cheaper than you used to so now it becomes a little bit more affordable to get a second machine to just do all your your rendering on or or whatever but then you know all these things think you think about it and you're like okay well that's interesting because now maybe maybe cp rendering isn't dead maybe the farms out in the world uh if arnold like say becomes gpu and cpu exchangeably um then it it it's like okay well if that if they can do that and I send my my job using Arnold, and let's say Arnold GPU's out and it's interchangeable, which I don't know that it will be, so don't quote me on that. Um, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's done on a GPU farm or CPU farm, it's whatever. But for home, it makes a lot of sense because now I can now afford to have a second machine in my office because it doesn't cost that much. So it's just interesting, you know? Yeah, I think, um... Well, it'll be cool to see how that plays out for sure. And um, as always, comments, man. We love seeing those of you out there that might, you know, be looking at this stuff and maybe even buying some of this stuff. Are those AMD chips out? I think they are, but I don't know of any place that has already got motherboards and like selling mm. full systems yet. Um, and the Cinebench scores were pretty decent on these machines. I think they were like. Uh, I'll put them in the uh, in the show notes, but I want to say they were like just under two thousand. Yeah, if anybody out there is looking into this, we'd love to hear from you guys too. Like in the comments, as always, like we love continuing the discussion because these are kind of like early 
uh, early news for this stuff. So if you guys have any feedback, man, that that yeah, be- I'd love to know if anybody knows of any like reliable GPU farm solutions. Hit us up, man, because there's a lot of people I know that that would mm-hmm. love to know what they are. So I have a uh, quick question before we jump into a, like our main topic too. If you're in the middle, like it sounded like you had the project done, and then you went to render it, and then you kind of almost flippantly said, like, oh, I'll just render it here. Like, how long did that process take to transfer textures and lighting and all that stuff? And all the look looks, because I saw some of the renders you were doing, they looked amazing, and it's like a very beautiful render. How much work is it, and how much tweaking is it to go, well, I'm not going to do this in Redshift, I'm going to go do it in Arnold instead? Uh, well, it wasn't as you know, I flip-flop all the time. So for me, like going from one to the other, it's not it's not so bad. Um, I will say that um, because Redshift is still in alpha, that it took me a, a, a bit longer to, to even... But that was the first thing I started in. So like everything was kind of new at that point. I did a previs, uh, all just kind of gray shaded with no rendering at all just to kind of work out my timings and my camera and my edit and all that sort of stuff and then once i decided redshift i was like okay well let's just start this off i start building out my shaders started getting everything you know uv'd and set up correctly um and and that was the most time consuming process is just kind of like figuring out what it was going to look like and so then once i knew what it was going to look like and i'm like well i can't use redshift i'm going to go into octane it was really pretty simple because I had already made all the textures already kind of knew what I wanted. So it was just about like rebuilding the shaders, you know, from scratch. And, and, you know, there were some things that were kind of like, I don't like about octane, um, that, you know, I just kind of found workarounds for like, I'm not really, not really, uh, keen on the fact that there's no light linking. So I couldn't art direct some things the way that I wanted to, but it was okay. I was willing to forgo that because it was fast. Um, and, and then, you know, when I ran into the whole problem that I talked about and I ended up moving into Arnold, that was probably the easiest for me because I had already um, been building a pretty robust Arnold material library. Hmm. Uh, back when, you know, we were talking about doing the everyday carry material libraries uh, for Arnold. So I literally had every metal that that I had made and all the plastics and all that stuff. So literally when I was starting in Arnold, I was like, Oh, I'm going to need this. I'm going to need plastic. I'm going to need wood. I'm going to need this. And so then that was just kind of like, Oh, look at that. Pretty much done. Although the, the big difference between the three, I didn't do, I did in camera depth of field on Redshift. Uh, I did in camera depth of field on octane, but I did not do in camera depth of field on Arnold mm-hmm. because Arnold and depth of field just don't play nice together on macro shots um, because depth of field takes so many damn rays to clean up and not make noisy that it was like impossible to get to converge like on a clean image in Arnold with a macro depth of field. And and then I kind of just came to my head and I came to my senses and I was like, what the hell am I doing depth of field in the camera for anyway? I never used to do it that way. I only started doing it that way when I could and using, you know, GPU rendering because it was like, oh, novelty. I can do in camera depth of field now. And so I said to myself, I'm like, screw this. Like, I'm just going to do it the way I used to do it with lens care. Like, you know, a normal production <laughs> with a Z pass and lens care. And so... That's what I did. And I was talking to Trevor about it. And I'm like, because Trevor, uh, Kara, and I, we, we hit each other up all the time. And I was hitting him up through this whole process. And I'm like, dude, I think I might be doing it in Arnold after all. And he's like, I knew you'd be back. You know, he's like giving <laughs> me shit about it. And I'm like, well, you know, it, it literally, it, it, was the, it made the most sense. It got the look that I wanted. Um, and I could send it off to a farm and not have to tie up my machine so I could work on the next shots. And, and really that, that's what it came down to. So when will this video that we've been talking about, when will people be able to see this thing? Because I, I personally have seen some shots from it and it's looking pretty cool. I'm excited to get it out. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to work on it today. Well, it, it's, it, it was fun, you know? Like, so 
it, to to answer your question, probably this week, sometime early this week. But it, it it's a it was a fun process for me because I love making I love like making spots and doing telling stories and whatnot. It's, it's I mean it's nothing crazy. It was basically like we wanted to make a little promo, so I kept it very contained and very light. And um, I wanted to you know just get something out that kind of showed off the 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 gorilla grade LUTs that we're going to be promoting. Um, but yeah, I mean it, it. I love doing those things, especially when um, after being at DK for so many uh, years and like doing those things uh, a lot, making commercials and whatnot, it's just like something that I, I, I like doing and like being able to do it for the company that you're working at is a really cool thing because now I'm the client, you know, like, you're, yeah, you're the client and the artist. I know. That's it's awesome. <laughs> like I was chatting with, I don't remember who I was chatting with, but they were like, I was asking them what they were working on and they were like, Oh, I'm working on this thing, man, this, this client just like flip flopping, just being a pain in the ass. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> don't miss that. <laughs> and then here I am flip flopping myself. Like, you Oh, no, you're not going to do it in this renderer. You're going to do it in that renderer. So yeah, I guess I'm my own worst enemy. Yeah. You made it hard on yourself, man. That's all right. For the love of the game. <laughs> well, I'm excited to see that, man. And as always, um, yeah, not only uh, the comments in in YouTube and stuff are really helpful, but if you guys want to see show notes um, for all this stuff, we always put them out on uh, not only YouTube, but also on our podcast as well on our blog. So hope you check it out. Um, what's, the, uh, what's the main topic today? Well, we were going to talk about color. And um, I know that seems like a really vague <laughs> topic, but uh, I, and it, it kind of all started from this comment that had started on uh, on the Redshift Slack, and then kind of other people started tweeting about it, and and then I was ta even talking to Sakani. I don't know if you guys know Sakani, but he's he's a cool guy, and we were talking about color, and I feel like there's there's Color is like this thing that I sort of think I understand, and then somebody will say something, and then I realize I don't know anything about it at all. And it's one of those things that are really, it's really hard to wrap my head around uh, when you're talking about color, both in a 3D application and how it gets displayed on your computer and all these things. And it started way back way back when linear uh, workflow was kind of introduced. Yeah, when linear came out, that was, remember that, Chris? We were, I think we were at a Chicago C4D meetup, and I think I was actually presenting the week that the linear stuff came out. And there were so many questions about it, and it took me so long to even start to wrap my head around it. And the, the, the gist of linear, as far as I understand, too, is computer monitors were lying to you for years and years and years because of basically the the simplicity of how they built computer monitors to like display text they didn't really keep in mind that we might put photos and videos on a computer monitor back then those specs and those specs for computer monitors continued through for years and years and years and to today so far that as they built 3d packages they didn't keep it in mind that it's not displaying very true and I'm already messing this up. You guys could go <laughs> you guys can go check out the old school linear video stuff. The good news is today you can mostly ignore it because they basically recorrected it in the 3D applications. Basically right. all the translation is being done for you. But that alone understanding that your computer is speaking in different colors than your monitor is is already confusing. Like, confusing, right? Your computer's doing different math than what you're seeing. So you add that on top of all this other stuff you guys are talking about, and it's a uh, it's a very confusing space. But uh, dude, well. it's so confusing. Yeah, I remember when when I discovered like uh, what you know like uh, the linear workflow was. Um, it was before any of the apps decided to take it out of your hands and just will handle it. So you, like you if you didn't know, I think I even. I think I was at Somersault and you were, you might've been there, Nick. Were you there when I went, did I show you that? Like, like here's what your color looks like. Cause I think you did a post. 
Yeah, yeah. You showed you you were one of the main dudes that actually had it wrapped around you. You you had it in your head at least a little bit enough to explain it to me to make it make sense for sure. You yeah. were showing me like here's what you here's what you think you see, and here's linear, <laughs> and this is why it's way more beautiful. I'm like, yeah, okay, now this matters. Yeah, so yeah. that was like you know the whole two point two gamma thing, and I'm not going to get into detail too much on that because that, that's kind of a rabbit hole. But it you know it it did start this whole kind of thought process and in, in my head and like once that kind of came around and every app decided okay yeah we're gonna we're gonna make sure that we handle this the correct way uh maya does it now max does it cinema does it um so yeah that was like okay cool that's figured out we're done right <laughs> and like i guess maybe we're not done because somebody I was talking to somebody on the on the red slip red uh, red red shift. I almost said red slack red shift slack, and um, they were mentioning like I really wish uh, I could load color profiles or LUTs into Cinema 4D, and I was not understanding why you would want that in your 3D application um, to be baked in. So for those of you that don't know, like okay, so um, in, for instance, Octane. In Octane, you have different film uh, profiles that you can select. And they, I don't know how they're doing it under the hood other than they have a bunch of different film stocks that you can choose from. It'll, it'll drastically change the look of your image because it's trying to emulate these different film stocks. Generally, I choose linear because I don't want any of that crap baked into my render. And I render it out linear, I bring it into my After Effects or whatever, and I grade it, I make it look pretty with a LUT or whatever, a girly grade LUT, and you know, just kind of like work, work with it that way. This person was saying, I want to be able to make artistic decisions uh, with that look or film response curve applied in my 3D application. Like I want to work not in sRGB color space, but in some other color space. And I was kind of like, well, why would you ever want to do that? And, and, and I understand like my workflow is not everybody else's workflow. And if he wants to, let's say, maybe that helps him understand how he's going to light his shot or whatever. I think then, yes, it should be, I, sh I think you should be able to apply a lookup table or a color profile in the picture viewer or in a frame buffer of your choice, whether it's Arnold or Octane, whatever, and have it be non-destructive. I think he was wanting it to be have the choice to have it be baked in or not baked in. But it does kind of like make you think, okay, well that that discussion is interesting because I guess what what they were saying and other people were saying was that um, uh, the response curve of S sRGB is not pretty and linear is linear. It's like, it's like if you were a, a DP and you went out and you shot something, uh, most DPs, you know, when they, when they're shooting they're they are using a LUT when they're shooting, they're not looking at a log image because a log image is very flat and washed out because it's got all the detail, you know, preserved in the frame. They use a lookup table, a LUT to convert that into something usually sRGB or Rec. 709 or some sort of other LUT that brings it to a slightly more um, normalized or what I don't even know the term, but so it doesn't look washed out basically. <laughs> so imagine if you're a DP and you're shooting with your grade, your color grade applied while you were shooting it. Would that change your decision-making process while you're shooting? Right. You know? Yeah, I, it, it's an interesting discussion because of the way that those were made, right? Like, so to me, LUTs and the ability to see your look on set is really a smart move, right? This this lookup table, the ability to see your final look on set but not bake it in is a totally realistic, um, like a, a great thing to have because you're right, it is washed out. And so if you if you take that to 3D world, it's actually there. There are two different types of people that I that I meet. One is more like you, Chad, that you want all the detail 
coming out of 3D the same way that a log um, would would come out of a, a digital camera with as much detail and as much and as little contrast really as possible. You want all the shadow detail, all the highlight detail. You're basically exposing for both, then throwing it into your uh, compositing app and then adding the contrast. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it, and I have seen people do this, especially people using a lot of like Octane, that they'll do the look dev, the full look dev in Octane so that they, that, so that they do minimal compositing. And that does save time, right? But it is less flexible. So if you're doing quick turnaround and you can look at the screen and the client agrees, like this is the way we want it to look, and you could render it out directly of Octane or wherever, then I, that does make sense. But it does limit your flexibility because if you want to then go pull out the detail, it might not be there because it's, it's all crushed down. You're making right. me think of uh, the behind the scenes in the movie Sin City. Because in that movie, everything is green screen. Like there's oh, there's almost nothing in the way of props or, or your scenery on that. And then the actors, so it's like, okay, the artists can do anything in the world with it. You put them in any background, any environment, do anything you want. But then the actors can't see what they're supposed to be interacting with and cannot give like the kind of performance that they want to. So there, there could be a type of person who can kind of project themselves into the future and be like, I know what I'm going to do with this. And there's a different type of person who, or even just a different, you know, spot in their career, maybe, where they're like, no, I need to be able to see where it's ending up before I get there. Yep. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Chris. And you couldn't have put it better, really. It really is like, <clears throat> you can either picture how you want it or where you can take it in that comp and know, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And it's going to, it's going to bring this out and crush this. Or you, you, you maybe, like you said, you're not, you, maybe you haven't done it enough yet to really kind of have that, um, that ESP. Uh, so doing it right there, you're able to be like, oh, let me try this. Let me try this. Let me try this. Oh, that looks cool. Let me bake that in. Like I could see the, I could see the appeal. I could totally see the appeal. <clears throat> I think, and, and I said, you know, I, I do think that it should be possible to load in. I would love to see it in cinema in the picture viewer, an ability to load in a LUT. I think that would be fantastic. Um, with If you could bake it into, great. I wouldn't, for me, it's not really something I would do, but it sounds like other people would be into that. Um, so hopefully that'll happen someday. But to build on this topic, what kind of, another thing that kind of like got my, you know, got me scratching my head was this video that somebody had put together about a tool for Blender um, called like, uh, I think it's called Filmic. Um, I don't want to butcher this. So let me just look it up really quick. Blender. The Filmic. secret ingredient to photorealism. Yeah, it's called Filmic Blender. Okay. So somebody tweeted me and said, hey, what, what do you think about this Filmic Blender thing? And I'm like, well, I don't really know much about Blender. And um, let me let me check it out. So what this what this video is saying is like the secret ingredient to photorealism is dynamic range. Um, and a lot of renderers and 3D programs don't really have dynamic range figured out, especially Blender apparently. Um, because, uh, and it all comes down to energy. And again, I'm not an expert in this. If I get any of this wrong, I apologize. Um, and hit us up in the comments if you have uh, something you know more intelligent to say on the subject, but anyway, uh, basically what it's saying is that um, you know the sun is much much brighter than this light that I have in in my office here. Um, yet in most three D applications, if you were to throw the sun into a window and render it out, not most, I'll just say Blender in Blender because it it is a weird Blender thing as I'm learning. Um, if you threw like a, a, a sun in a window in a 3D scene, um, then it, it, you know, it lights up the room with some GI, but it's still fairly dark. Whereas if I were to open up my window here and let the sun come in, this room would not be dark. It would be pretty well lit because the sun is really, really bright. And um, it's, it's like, I'm going to 
I'm just going to break this. <laughs> I'm going to use terms that I understand, which is not, I have to kind of lower, lower it down a little bit in terms of uh, complexity for myself, really. Um, which kind of like led to me to believe like, okay, well, yeah, the sun is really bright. And I used to like, you don't really think about that because like when you create a sun system in most applications, you hit render and there's your sun and it's exposed perfectly and you're, and, and you don't think about it, but like, think about it. And, and this is more, I guess we're getting into more philosophy, I guess on, on energy and lighting in general, but would you, should a 3d program have a physical camera that works the way a real camera does? And uh, if you were to, cause I remember back when I used, um, 3ds max and v-ray they had a physical camera uh and if you were to create a sun sky system in v-ray and max like make it and you hit render it would your whole frame would blow out to white just like blow the hell out and you had to create a physical camera and expose for the sun you had to like okay let me bring my f-stop up let me bring my is change my iso and then you could see your scene because it was a physical sun. It was a, it was bright as hell. And I don't know that I've seen that since then in any other program. And I'm, it got me thinking like, okay, well, is energy just a number? I could just turn the sun up in Arnold and make it 10 times as bright as this. And, but it does kind of make you think, right? Am I crazy? Or you... No, I think what you're describing too is maybe two different mindsets and it is almost like, um, a philosophical difference so if you think of a painter that's trying to make something look realistic they're using tones and brightness of paint to emulate how the final look will be let's say that there's a window and a sun coming in picture like a v-ray scene beautiful indoor v-ray scene but a painting well they don't have that limitation right there is no whiter than white as far as paint goes you can't there's no 32 bit float there right so they have to learn what the what the translation is from looking right and that's about it so that's more of an artistic decision and and it takes a long time to figure out what tones kind of give that give that vibe so let's call that the art way then there's the technical way which is all right we're going to flood this with a bunch of light we're gonna put a, um, we're gonna measure how bright the sun is. We're gonna put that physical light in the scene. We're gonna make it that bright. We're also gonna put this lamp over in the corner and measure how bright that is, and then rely on realistic rendering solutions to kind of do the math for us. And then there's there's that way. Let's call that the photographer's way. Well, that's the is, physical way. Yeah, which is the physical way, which is how a photographer would do it in real world. So I think you might be bumping into how different artists think about this and so sometimes like for example i'll use a fill light to kind of fill in the gaps uh, and brighten up a scene that is not realistic that is not how the real world works where i could just add a light everywhere at once that's unique to 3d but it does solve a problem of really dark images and adding a lot of contrast uh, or adding less contrast right like mm -hmm. filling in those gaps um somebody else that is relying on technically setting this up as if it were a physical world now i'm thinking of right i'm thinking of like why lightkit pro i think has become such a big tool is because people understand how lights work and they just set it up like they would a studio and hit render and you're good so that's how my brain works is more physical and somebody else might do it in a more painterly way does that does that maybe fall into how, how this works? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's, it's an idea of um, dynamic range and energy. And if you're, to me, like I want the ability, I want to have it all, right? I want to be able to say, I want to be able to pipe, put, plug in the right numbers and have it look real. But then I also want it to be completely art directable. Um, and I think that's kind of the goal for, for any artist really is they, mm -hmm. they, to get a realistic room, like we talked about with the light coming in and having light bounce around and the energy feel physically plausible and real looking isn't something that I want to spend a lot of time doing. It should just be able to do that. However, if I want the ability to change it, like I want to, maybe I want the, maybe I really want the room to be really dark. Um, then I want that ability too. But I just thought it was interesting that, and as I found out watching the video, 
<clears throat> apparently Blender kind of limits energy somehow. I don't mm. know. Like it, it was weird. Like it has this like limitation um, that that I think they made this tool to kind of get around. That's cool. Um, but it it did make me think about it, like about light and energy, and um, uh, you know HDRIs and all these sort of things. Like you know. Uh, and I remember at one point I used this renderer called um, uh, Indigo. I think it was, yeah, Indigo is a is like a it's almost like a light simulator in the way that Maxwell kind of is. And it was really crazy how real it looked right out of the box, like not hardly doing anything, you know, because it really was like a light simulator. And um, every the energy that's bounced, it just felt so like, oh my god, I, I hardly did anything, and it looks absolutely you, you wouldn't question the lighting not looking real. And um, I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking about like, well, wow, wow, you know, what are they doing that's so different than um, other renderers are doing, either you know, physical, yeah. Arnold, whatever. And it really comes down to the, the dynamic range and the energy that's transferred from light to a surface. And um, it's just an interesting thing to think about. Like, you know, are we, do you light your scene based purely on your eye and just being able to like paint the image by putting lights where you want? And, you know, your sun, you have a sun, but its intensity is only like two times of like what a other incandescent light would be in your scene even though it should be more like whatever it is 10 or whatever like are you know what i mean like what's the what's the right way to do it is there even the right way to do that's it? that's the thing i don't think there is so yeah. if what we're making uh, you know at, at all times whatever is rendered out that is beautiful that you and your client like let's say mostly your client but let's <laughs> let's say everyone's happy then everyone's happy like right, right, but it's also about how you're, how you interpret how that works. Like, like I said, to me, it makes more sense to be physical. But I break the physical rule all the time to cheat to bring in, you know, things. So, so think about in the real world. If I were to take up a, a picture of a chrome sphere, my reflection would be in it the lighting reflection would be in it, and there's no checkbox that I could do other than fix it in Photoshop to remove those, those uh, potentially like imperfections in the photo, right? So in, in 3D, we have the ability to take photos of things that are, that are technically not possible. Like we're, we're able to take the photo of the chrome sphere without the camera being in the reflection, which is impossible to do in the real world, right? So if you think about those two things, what is more realistic and what is more, what makes more sense to work in? And for me, I think the best of both worlds is having it as close to real as possible out of the box, but having the ability to cheat it at all times. I mean, I think, I think it's really up to the artist and up to the, the, the workflow speed too, right? <laughs> like how, how detailed can we get? Right, right. And I, 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 you know, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's just stuff that uh, it fascinates me and also confounds me. And I'm always like, just when I think I have a handle on it, somebody will like hit me up and I'll be like, I guess I don't have a handle on this. Well, and, and maybe to transition to, and, and, and Chris, I know you, you've been on a journey for, for learning about lighting and stuff like that. So I want to hear what, what you think too. Um, my obsession of learning about lighting and how it applies to 3D it kind of it actually started with you, Chad. When I was asking you, you know, how how to make my stuff look more realistic, you you were the one, and I've told this story, and and sometimes you know, uh, I don't think people understand. You're the guy that told me, Nick, you take photos. You know how like studio lighting works in a photo studio. Just recreate that lighting in your 3D application, and it will be similar. It'll help you get the more realistic looks. And and so, like, literally, I credit you <laughs> to start up uh, Like It Pro, right? So residual checks in the mail, right? <laughs> and then and then I had to hire you. You know that from then on, it was I have to get Chad on the team. But to wrap it up, um, you know, I since then the the pursuit of looking at how light works and how textures work has been very interesting, and I I encourage anybody out there that 
um, that's still listening, right? That, that's like technical to like get through this stuff. And you guys want to learn more about how this works. So much of it applies. The more you learn about how physical textures and how physical light actually hits our environment and hits our eyeball is, is how these engineers are really thinking mm-hmm. about how to build these renderers. And the more that you can understand what that, it's almost like language. It's almost like a language translation. If you can learn a new language, you can then translate very easily between different renderers and how they work and understand physically how these calculations are being made because you're learning about it in the real world. And the more that you can understand how the real world works, the more you can apply that to your scene. And to your point, Chad, the more you can break it to to suit your needs and your client's needs. Um, yeah, I think I one of the things that I always tell new artists to do is like, even if you're not interested in photography, even if like you don't really ever want to be a photographer, learn how a camera works because that is going to inform how you approach lighting, how you approach uh, composition, everything in 3D can come from lighting and 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 shot composition and whatnot can come from learning photography I, i'm talking about not just like you know learning um how to set up a shot properly but learn what an f-stop does learn what the iso does learn how learn like take put your camera if you have an slr put it on manual and go take pictures and go mess around with all the settings and learn what they do because they all transfer into 3d and they can all make your stuff look more photographic uh, we we have to get Chris in because I, I know at this Chris point is, I've got no no this is just a listening podcast for me I knew it would be when you're talking about lighting even <laughs> at the technical end of it well, well we got it on UVs we talked a little bit about that well yeah, let me true. is there is there anything Chris that you've bumped into I, I I just I'm I'm so fascinated by your journey through a lot of this lighting stuff that I know you maybe even weren't interested in in the first place but as you, we were we started working together and you started even using some of the plugins early on that, that uh, I developed and then you, you guys started developing. Um, you know, how do you view lighting in 3D in general? Like if you have a scene, what's your, what's your process? <laughs> well, my, my process now is throw in HDRI Studio and then <laughs> pick the scene I like and now I don't have to think about lighting, which, is, uh, which has been my solution there. I mean, for me, complicated lighting was just like setting up something that kind of looked like outdoor lighting. Like I don't, I don't, I can't, it's it's just it's not a good variable for me. Like I'm not, I don't tend to go for the super pretty renders. I like the technical aspect of it. So then it turns into like, oh, I've made this thing. I just need to throw in some lights because that's not the part I'm interested in. And so like I never get to the point where I'm like trying to think about a rim light. Like if you watch if you watch any SGSG, I'm like, uh, I guess we need some lights. So I'll, I'll create three lights. One's there, <laughs> one's over there, one's behind us somewhere. Whatever. We got lights now. Like it's just <laughs> not something I think about. Well, so, so those few times when I kind of would be working on a render, like I did a couple like indoor renders where I was kind of making a more realistic scene. Then it's like, okay, let's try and like intentionally have the light be overblown and the skylights and, and whatnot. And so the few times, it's only interesting to me when I'm tackling it as a technical aspect mm. that I find particularly interesting in that scene. And so it's not something that crosses over to other things. So like, it's just, I, I'm kind of uniquely positioned that I'm bad at lighting and I, don't care that much. <laughs> well, I, where, where meanwhile, if I, if I was doing client work, that's one of the most important things. Well, I, I like I like that I like that you use our stuff too because it means that it's working. So that's that's good. Yeah, for everybody out there who doesn't know what they're doing lighting wise, like get HDRI Studio, and then you can make and then boom, you instantly get good reflections and good lighting, and you have to click like two buttons, and then you don't have to think about lighting. And if you know what you're doing with lighting, then you get light kit and you build your own lights. Oh, well, dude. getting getting back. Well, getting back to the UV thing. Then I feel like did did that make sense to you? The idea of having multiple UVs and and one material. It's not a workflow I do really. Uh, I was just curious. It, it was something I assumed that was what I was what was throwing me off was I assumed that there's a lot of stuff that cinema does, and then the third party renderers do certain other things. And to me, they do lighting and texturing. That's what they do: lighting, texturing, and then the rendering of those things. So I always thought that in all the renderers, they were still doing the same projections that cinema does. Like it was the same material tag effectively applied, 
but you know the algorithms once it strikes the material were different but you're saying that the different renderers even have like different projection types and they they apply that stuff differently i didn't i didn't know that was a variable that was taken away from cinema i thought that that was definitely well, cinema I can't, I can't speak to um how octane does it whether or not it's doing it through its own means or if it's doing it through um the normal uh cinema means but that's the only one that i know of that has like an under the hood kind of like i'm not sure if this is uh a cinema uv thing or if it's something else but the rest of them are just using cinema uv tags um one interesting thing though that i wish other renderers had that um which is called a triplanar uh map have you ever heard of this before uh yeah i think so in the context of video games i think so um and this is something that is like kind of become my go-to because i i'm just kind of lazy and i don't like to uv if i don't have to um a lot of times if you don't if you have like a hard surface with a lot of like little nooks and crannies or even if it's a soft surface and you just don't want to take the time to uv them um you can use what's called a triplanar mapping which basically is projecting it's a cubic projection that feathers the corners that's the best way to describe it okay so um it's kind of that makes a, sense because cubic is my go-to yeah yeah i mean it, it it's imagine having cubic but the corners feather in and you can control how much they feather. Um, and it's a super useful technique. Uh, you can use it in Arnold using a third party thing uh, for the L shaders and the L triplanar tri mapping is what I'm talking about. And I just wish it was like a standard because you realize how quickly you can become dependent on that when you're adding imperfections or grunge or something to an object. And you oh, yeah. If you're worried about fingerprints, you don't, they don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be yeah. just cubic with feathering done totally yeah and and using a triplanar map like that is great because you don't ever have to worry about like is the camera ever going to reach that spot where the, the cubic map you know meets an edge that it can't figure out and it gives you that weird jaggy line um so yeah it's, it's definitely uh something that i wish uh, there's some there's some people and some some renderers doing some stuff that i'm just like why is this not how it is everywhere anyway soapbox stepping down well i uh as always please let us know your thoughts um this stuff it, let us know too about this technical stuff because i think it's interesting to be able to dive into these things let us know if, what you guys think of this format as well because i think every once in a while talking about some of these bigger issues i don't see this stuff being discussed very much so hopefully there's some value in it and you guys let us know too yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the breakdown of the people watching because there's so many different things. Like we did, we got, I think we got like three styles right now. We've got like the philosophical ones where it's kind of like life hacks and what we think about things. And then we have th these type where it's just like the highly technical nitty gritty specific things. And then we have like the AMA or kind of rapid fire ones where we're like mm -hmm. getting, hitting as many questions as possible and just kind of bouncing around. So I'm curious where the breakdown is. And I mean, I think like most things, the best of balance is probably a little bit of all of them. I think we have a new um, we have a new uh, guest here. Oh <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Coop? What do you think? What what's your favorite Kaida podcast, buddy? <laughs> no? Are you the only one home there? I th I think somebody might be here too. Might we might have some friends coming in soon. I, I just think it's awesome that that dog is just like hanging out by you. <laughs> he's just been he's just been borrowed a dog. I've been petting a dog uh, the whole podcast. Oh, hi, buddy. This is Coop's Ched's dog's name, too. We got two Coopers. That's awesome. Well, More dogs. Uh, More dogs always, on the podcast. And, 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 uh, if it, and also topics. We, we get a lot of our topics from, obviously, things happening the week before the show, like, like today. But also, if anybody has... Um, stuff that you're uh, struggling with right now in your career or technically or like I said I think Chris kind of laid it out in a good way questions bigger topics and also nitty-gritty so let us know what you guys are thinking of and uh, we'd love to uh, talk about it and see see how much we know about it <laughs> yeah definitely well yeah we jump all over the place I'm looking forward yeah. to a month from now we're gonna finally we're gonna finally get podcast not a, Ooh, not yeah, a that's podcast but talking about past April Fool's days and pranks dude 
NAB is coming up. It's crazy. Yep. So uh, we'll, we'll, let's make sure we talk about this next podcast at the beginning, but we will be at NAB. If you're going to be at NAB, come find us. We're going to be at the Maxon booth. We're actually uh, a partner booth with Maxon. So uh, come, um, come find us if you're at NAB, and, and let's make sure we talk about that next week as well and uh, some of the things we have planned. So we're excited to be at the Maxon booth as always. Thanks to Maxon US, US for uh, having us. And, uh, yeah, let's, we'll, we'll have more news very soon about that as well. Yeah, but that's still that's not until late April. So yeah, stop but, freaking me out thinking I have to plan my presentation. <laughs> no, but people have to get their plane tickets, man. If they're gonna go and hang out and, and come to NAB, you know, we gotta no, that, announce early. That, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> we got time. We got time to do our press. We gotta make our dinner reservations now, man. That stuff fills up. That's right. Cool, cool. Uh, well, um, I think that's it for today. How's everyone yeah. feeling? I feel good, man. Let's, uh, you know. I'm going to see. I, I put it in the podcast notes. I put a name for the podcast. I'll see if Chad actually follows through with it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, as, as long as it's uh, not too uh, raunchy, I think we'll be good. Cool. All right. Well, you want to give us the uh, the old goodbye, Chad? I like that you start and end it. I think, uh, I think this is good. I think you got the right voice for it. I've also got the stop broadcast and go broadcast button. <laughs> so that probably helps things too. <clears throat> All right. Well, we, 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 we might, uh, we might have a guest next week as well. Don't want to, don't want to tease it too much. Cause maybe, maybe they can't make yeah, it. We, ha- we haven't, we haven't run it past them yet, but guest uh, next week. Um, because Nick may or not, may or may not be with us. Is that right, Nick? Yeah, I'm still, the schedule is a little rough out here. It's mostly about Wi-Fi at a certain point once we get on the road more, but, um, yeah, uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned for more guests and on the next Grayscale Gorilla podcast. Bye. Bye.